May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I'm sure you know by now that it has been a very stressful afternoon for some of us. We do not want that to get into the in, in, in the way of a of a good sermon, right? So we we want to pray for God's grace and mercy and make our way into our sermon text as quickly as possible. There are more important things to discuss than technological failures and uh, various frustrations of life. I tried to keep things in perspective as well, knowing that some of our brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring much more severe circumstances than any of us have faced today. And so I thank God for that. And little frustrations here and there uh, are bound to come our way, but cannot deter us from entering into the presence of God to worship and to enjoy the revelation of God, the revelation of himself in the scriptures. Today, by the Christian calendar, is Trinity Sunday, and this is the day that God's people throughout the world remember that God has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And you'll notice through the course of our service today, if you haven't picked up on it already, that we are gravitating around the triune God, one God in three persons. The text that I've selected for this evening is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And that's it. Chapter 1, verse 2. A brief statement from 1 Peter that introduces us to who God is by telling us some things that God does. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to develop this in just a moment, and we're going to focus our attention today on the mystery of this Trinitarian grace in salvation. And so if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for this brief reading of God's holy word, and then we will enter into the sermon together. The Word of God reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that is the Word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Our Lord Jesus Christ said on the night that he was betrayed in an upper room conversation with his disciples that eternal life is knowing the one true God. Not just knowing facts and data points about God, but knowing the true and living God. Jesus was not interested in getting us to know God the way you might get to know a rock star or a professional athlete, but knowing God personally and relationally, the way you know each other, the way you know your parents, the way you know your siblings. In other words, getting to know God, the triune God, in the context of family dynamic and relationship. And so as I said, I want to draw your attention to the true and living God who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures as one God in three persons. Some of you can remember back with me to a couple of years ago when I was undergoing the ordeal of 
ordination exams. And on the day of my first oral exam, I show up and I was suffering vertigo. Do you guys remember those days? I was suffering vertigo and I was trying to hold it together. The inside of me was spinning around. And I'll never forget the questioner across the table asking me if I could explain to him the difference between the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. And I went completely blank. My head was spinning so bad, I thought, I don't know what you're talking about. And so he gave me some feeder info to kind of kickstart my thinking. And even then, the vertigo was kicking in overdrive. Not just the physical vertigo that assailed me, but the theological vertigo as I entered into this discussion of the difference between these two aspects of what the Trinity are. Now, I'm not going to break that down for you this evening. I simply want you to know that when we talk about the Trinity, we are in deep waters We are getting into some mysteries and we are getting into things that are very complex. And so we want to be very careful as we make our way through these waters. If anyone ever comes to you and says, I can help you understand the Trinity. And they say the Trinity is like, it doesn't matter what they say after that, you know, they're verging on heresy. So don't go there with them. Okay. If the Trinity is like anything else, then we have a real problem. God has revealed himself to us in such a way that it baffles our imaginations and we can't get our minds completely around it. We simply have to embrace the fact that there is mystery at the heart of the Christian religion. One of the Cappadocian fathers named Gregory of Nazianus, also known as the theologian, wrote, No sooner do I conceive of the one then I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole and my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. It's a lot more fun if you're just sitting in the quiet of your study reading this and meditating on it. But what he's getting at is that God is incapable of total comprehension by the human mind. And it draws him to worship. It draws him to worship. The Roman Catholic Catechism says, and I do agree with their catechism on this point, that the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of the Christian faith and of Christian life. God alone can make it known to us by revealing Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I reference that simply to say that Christians from a variety of traditions have drawn the same conclusions about the triune God. And that is that God is this mystery, uh, this, this mystery that there, he's a tremendous mystery that we cannot fully grasp. Now, Peter tries to help us here, doesn't he? Peter tries to help us by explaining to us things that God does. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit does. I want you to think of it this way. You know how it is when you first meet someone? 
there are usually two questions that come out right away. The first question is, what is, what is your name? Right? Everyone, what's your name? And then you immediately forget the answer to that question. And then you move on to the next question, which is, hey, what do you do? And that's the thing that really matters to us is, what do you do? And if you like what you do, you don't mind telling. And if someone else doesn't like what they do, they don't mind telling. But the point is, we like to know each other, not simply by a name, but by what each other does. What do you do? When we approach the triune God, we might ask the same question. What is your name? And he would say, my name is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, well, what do you do? Right? We Moving on, what do you do? And Peter says, well, here are some things that God does. Now, what I want you to see in the context of 1 Peter 1 is that God, the triune God, does these things for a specific people. And he has in mind here elect exiles. Peter is writing a letter to a group of people. It's to the church, but these are Christians who have been scattered and they've gone all over the place because of different hardships and difficulties in life. And now Peter writes a letter and he wants all of these elect exiles, strangers and aliens in the world to hear a message. And he wants to comfort them and shore up some things for them. He's a good pastor. He understands that life is difficult. And when you're under hardship and pressure, it's easy to forget who God is. It's easy to doubt. It's easy to wonder if God still cares about you. It's easy to to wonder about all these kinds of things. So Peter writes this letter to these elect exiles, reminding them of the true grace of God. And when he says true grace of God at the end of the letter, he means the true grace of God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. And so he's shoring up these people and trying to comfort them and console them with this great truth of God's grace. The word elect is modified by three prepositional phrases that describe the gracious work of God. And that's what we're going to center our attention on. Uh, The prepositional phrases are to, in, and for. Okay, The triune God elected us according to to the the foreknowledge of the Father. The triune God elected us in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And the triune God elected us for the obedience and sprinkling of Jesus Christ. And so we hear in this passage the Trinitarian grace of God at work to us, in us, and for us. You see that? So now you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working graciously together for your sake, for your benefit. So let's look at these one at a time. And as you're gearing up for that, let me share something with you that I find to be very moving as we approach this. Herman Bovink, who has become one of my favorite authors to read, a Reformed theologian, says in his section uh, on the uh, on the Holy Trinity. Just a fantastic read if you ever get a chance. But one of the things he says is that in the doctrine of the Trinity, we feel the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for the redemption of humanity. Man, I just didn't expect to read that in a work of theology. That we feel the heartbeat of God's entire revelation. 
And so my hope and prayer going forward for the next few minutes is that you are going to be able to put your hands on this doctrine of the Trinity and in some way feel the heartbeat of this Trinitarian grace at work in your life. So here's the first thing we'll look at. Elect elect exiles are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter wants to encourage these exiles by reminding them that they do in in fact have a father and that they were chosen on purpose by that father according to his foreknowledge. And throughout the rest of the letter, he'll talk to them about what they were and what they're becoming and those kinds of things. But his point is that God the Father knew more about them than they knew about themselves and he chose them anyway. He uses this word foreknowledge that causes a lot of people concern, but it's a word that Peter has used in his preaching and his writing. For example, on the day of Pentecost, he said Jesus was delivered up according to the ordained plan and the foreknowledge of God. And then later in this same letter that we're looking at, he says Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for your sake. But then he takes this word foreknowledge that has up to this point just been applied to God the Father's relationship to Jesus. And he brings you into that foreknowledge. He explains that you, like the crucifixion of Jesus, are a chosen people. And you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And so you see, in each and every case, Peter begins with divine foreknowledge in eternity, and then he moves into history, space-time history, where real things, real life is happening. Foreknowledge doesn't just mean that God looks down and he gathered a bunch of data and information and facts about what was going to happen and what you might or might not do and the way you may or may not feel, and then he made some decisions based on that. That's a strange way to look at things, right? What Peter is getting at is that God looks down these proverbial corridors of time and he sees what he's going to do. And he sees why he's going to do it, how he's going to do it, and what choices and decisions he is going to make on behalf of his chosen people. And keep in mind that these chosen people, these elect exiles, are not people that God chose because they were the wisest or the strongest, or the most righteous. No, God only chose sinners to love. And so he set his love on sinners like us. The Father knew us before our parents knew each other. He knew us before we knew ourselves. He knew us when we were weak, and when we were wavering, and when we were wandering astray. He knew us in all of those moments. He knew us when we were at our worst. And he still elected us by grace. He still picked us out. He still chose us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. This is what Peter has in mind when he's writing to these people who are scattered everywhere and feeling displaced and marginalized and homeless. He says, God chose you according to his foreknowledge. He is your father. His election of you is based on his mercy and love for you. And that is based on grace alone and not your works at all. 
right after this section we just read, he goes into this praise of God. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And when you have some time this week, maybe downtime early in the morning, late at night, I don't know how your day unfolds. But try to contemplate what it's like to have God the Father love you. What it means to to know that God the Father has chosen you. How encouraging is it that you have always been on His mind. You've always been on his heart from the foundation of the world. And that sooner or later, he will come and reveal himself to you and reveal his love to you and finally welcome you home. Can you feel the heartbeat of Trinitarian grace pulsating through what Peter is telling us here? As exiles and strangers in the world, we often feel homeless. But Peter reminds us that we have a home with God the Father. And though we are often hated by the world, Father God loves us deeply. This is the true grace of God. We can stand in this, right? But there's another part of this heartbeat that I want you to feel. Elect exiles are chosen by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The word sanctification means set apart or consecrated, purified or made holy. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to make things holy to the Lord, to make people holy to the Lord for the purposes of God. And the point of all of this is that these elect exiles who have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father in eternity past and who are now experiencing the love of God in the present are being shaped and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, moving them towards a future. So God sends the Holy Spirit into the world and the Holy Spirit moves throughout the nations, moves throughout families in space and time, seeking God's elect exiles, setting them apart for God's holy purposes. He's seeking and saving the lost by applying this gracious work of Jesus Christ to their lives. A practical example of what that looks like in real life can be found just by reading the book of Acts. There's an occasion where the Apostle Peter is sent from one city to another to meet a family that God has told him about. God intends to save a man along with his household. And so he arranges everything. The travel arrangements are set up. The time and place is set up. God has appointed this meeting between Peter and Cornelius. And Peter goes and he preaches the good news of God's grace. And in the midst of his preaching, in the the middle of his preaching, the Holy Spirit interrupts the whole thing and makes it clear to everyone present that God intends to save this family. That family has been set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit for the saving work of Jesus Christ to enter into their lives. And this is the kind of thing the Holy Spirit does, not simply in the book of Acts, but in your own life, in your own family. He sanctifies people, sets them apart for God's purposes and God's pleasure. 
Later on, we learn in 1 Peter 1 that another work of the Holy Spirit is to purify and sanctify the people of God. You often hear the expression, come as you are. And a lot of people think, well, that'd be great. I'll just come as I am and leave as I am. But when you come as you are into the household of God, you never leave unchanged. And so the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. And Peter will bring a passage from the book of Leviticus and apply it to the church and say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Again, you see the spirit setting apart God's people for God's purposes and then moving them to engage in godly practices. The pursuit of holiness is an evidence, a proof, a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Now, the Holy Spirit sets us apart for the person and work of Jesus Christ to take full effect in us. And that leads us to the third thing. Elect exiles are chosen for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Keep these two things in mind. Obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. The triune God has elected you for a purpose. And what is the purpose? The easy answer would be to say salvation. He's elected me for salvation. And that's big picture. That's sort of end end of the story stuff. But in the meantime, what does it look like? Obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Peter explains it this way elsewhere in chapter 1 when he says, Know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, this echoes the language of covenant making. You remember our recent series on covenants, and we alluded to some of these things where when God made covenant with people, a lot of things happen, right? Words are exchanged, vows are exchanged, symbols are on display. And it's no different here. If you hearken back to Exodus 24 for just a moment, let me uh, refer to this. I'll try to break it down in very simple terms, but We learn there that when the people were before God and he had given them the law, all the people answered with one voice that all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is their vow, their commitment to the Lord. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he rose up early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And then he sent young men of the people of Israel out and they offer burnt sacrifices and sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And then Moses takes blood from these offerings and he puts it in basins and he sprinkles the altar and then he sprinkles other furnishings and he sprinkles this and he sprinkles that. And then he gets to the people and he starts sprinkling blood on the people. 
The scripture actually says that he took the blood and he threw it on the people. And behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I'm sure when you have blood thrown and splashed onto you, that leaves quite a mark, right? It's quite an impression. This is life and death stuff. Now, Peter has borrowed the imagery of that. That we will do and blood being sprinkled. He brings all that together for us. And he tells us that under the law, the people vowed to be obedient to the law of God. We saw that Moses sprinkled their bodies with the blood of sacrifices. But something true and better happens in the gospel. And in the gospel, it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and sets us apart for obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who sprinkles our hearts with the blood of Christ. So you don't get blood thrown on your face. You don't get blood sprinkled on your head. Instead, you get water. And it comes down to you from above. Baptism is the sign and seal of this sprinkling with blood. And all of us who have been baptized into Christ may now draw near to God boldly and freely with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Baptism is also a sign and seal of our giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. It's also a sign and seal of our faith and obedience to God. It is through the obedience to the truth of God's word that we purify our souls with the help of the Holy Spirit. This is what in our tradition we call improving upon our baptism. We don't make the baptism better. We make our living out of the baptismal covenant better. In other words, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And baptism is also a sign and seal of our, of our giving up our own names unto God and of our taking God's name upon ourselves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So do you see all these things are coming together in what Peter is writing here? Again, Herman, Herman Bovink has this beautiful thing to say about this. He says, we know ourselves to be children of the Father, redeemed by the Son, and in communion with both through the Holy Spirit. Every blessing, both spiritual and material, comes to us from the triune triune God. In that name, we are baptized. And that name sums up our confession. That name is the source of all the blessings that come down to us. To that name, we will forever bring thanksgiving and honor. In that name, we find rest for our souls and peace for our conscience. Christians have a God above them, before them, and within them. Our salvation, both in this life and in the life to come, is bound up with the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet we grant that we cannot determine the measure of knowledge, also of this mystery, needed for a true and sincere faith. Well, the focus of our message today has been on the mystery of this Trinitarian grace in our salvation. And I don't know how you hear the doctrine of election in connection with the doctrine of the Trinity. Two massive 
truths to take in at one time. I know that for some people, the doctrine of election is terrifying. They find it to be cruel and mean, and there are things they don't understand about it that lead them to those conclusions. But then there are other people who find great comfort in knowing that despite their terrible sin, despite their weakness and failure, despite their unworthiness, God the Father loves them anyway for the sake of His Son. And so I hope that you find comfort in the things that you've heard today. If you know that you've always been on God's mind since before the foundation of the world, if you trust that God has set His love on you in eternity past, then you can rest assured that He will not forget about you now nor forsake you tomorrow. That's a comforting thought. And despite what your truest love may say to you, God is the only person who could ever say to anyone, you are always on my mind. And you were. And you are on His mind. If He's been thinking about you from eternity past, do you think He's going to stop thinking about you in space-time history? If He's been loving you from always, do you think He's ever going to stop loving you? And the answer is no, never. You are not an afterthought in God's economy. You are not an accident. You are an adored and admired son or daughter of God. And that's not just preacher speak. That's just the exposition of Scripture. God loves you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He cares about you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He's proven it to you in countless ways, ways of which you've only begun to scratch the surface in your own walk with Him. So again, I imagine that some who are here hear this teaching on election and they're not comforted. They're conflicted and they're concerned. Maybe that describes you. And one of the concerns that comes up often in discussions like this is, is God fair? Is it right and fair for God to choose some and not others? Concerns us greatly. But usually what we really want to know is, has God chosen me? Has He overlooked me? Has He bypassed me? How can I know if I'm one of God's elect? And so there are people who think the solution to that is learn more theology. Get better equipped with doctrines. Learn your catechism. And then you will know the answer to that. But can I tell you that the reformers have given a much simpler way to know? Echoing the scripture. If you have any doubt in your mind about whether God loves you, whether God has sanctified you, whether God wants to sprinkle blood on you for your salvation, I can give you the very simple answer. Here's all you need to know. And it's not even about knowing. It's about believing. You don't ask the question, am I one of God's elect? You ask this question, do I believe the good news of Jesus Christ? Do I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Do I believe that Jesus bore my sins to the cross and died in my place to save me? Do I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to deliver me from death? Do I believe 
that Jesus is my only comfort in life and in death? And if you can answer yes to one or a few of those questions, you can rest assured that God has set His love and affection on you, that God cares for you, that God intends to save you. Now you might say, well, I don't know. My faith seems so weak. My faith is shaky. To which I would push back and say, even the smallest faith is big enough to save the worst of sinners. It's never about the size of your faith. It's about the size and magnitude of your Savior. And so if you believe these truths with all your heart, maybe even some of your heart, If you don't believe them with all your heart, if you waver in doubt, but you still want to believe, then there's no need to despair. God is mercy. God is gracious. And I hope that you see the triune God is personal and infinite. I hope you... See that the triune God elects people just like you from every nation under heaven. And I hope you see that God only elects the weakest and the foulest of sinners and never saints. Because there aren't any. The Father loves His children. The Spirit consecrates them. And Jesus gives His life as a ransom for His brothers and sisters to make them a part of His family. And so I hope to convince you sometime, if not tonight, I hope that you're convinced that the triune God has elected you and that you are beginning to feel the heartbeat of His Trinitarian grace pulsating in your life now and always. And as Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let us pray. O triune God, we draw near to you at your invitation. And we seek mercy and grace in our time of need. We pray, O Father, that you will remind all who are present here of your deep and everlasting love for them. That you have displayed in countless ways in sustaining life and providing food and shelter and working the circumstances of their life providentially in such a way that they've all been able to hear the gospel of grace not once but many, many times to be reminded again that you are their father and they are your children. And we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that your work of grace, that your shed blood, the life you lived on behalf of your brothers and sisters, will be a life that is reflected in your brothers and sisters as they overcome sin and death, as they live to please the Father, as they strive to walk before the face of God, bearing the cross, enduring hardships, walking in the steps of Jesus Christ, even 
enduring unjust and unfair suffering in the world. We pray that your life will be reflected in their life. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will see the children adopted into God's family, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, struggling to obey, striving to walk before God's face and please Him. And that you will give them more grace and sustain them. That you will help them to overcome sin and death and repent of their sins and obey the Word of God. We pray, O Spirit, that you will breathe new life into your people again and again. People who are weighed down, crushed, burdened. We pray, O Spirit, that you will breathe new life and reconnect the brothers and sisters of Jesus to him and to the Father, that they may enjoy fellowship together. O triune God, you've been merciful to reveal your grace to us through your word. And as this word is made living and active by the tender mercies and power of our God, we do pray that the truths we heard tonight will be activated in us. And they will stir us to fresh life again. As we remember that while we might be scattered and frayed and burdened, the triune God is to us and in us and for us. And it is in Him that we live and move and exist for the glory of God and the good of others. Amen.